This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. We're wearing black armbands this week. Flacco the owls. Yeah, Flacco is dead. Long live Flacco. Do we think we should t- to provide some background on Flacco the owl? Well, I- I'm guessing that people pay very close attention to every word that comes out of our mouths on this podcast. So presumably they'll know what we're talking about. But if they don't, this was this Eurasian eagle owl yep. that was set free from the Bronx Zoo in New York. And it's become, um, it-, it became, what do you think, a symbol of freedom, a symbol of hope to New Yorkers? That's what they say, don't they? Yeah, so for, for over the last year, it's been spotted all around Manhattan. It was an act of vandalism that allowed Flacco to escape, wasn't it, we think? Sorry, but, I didn't mean to be sort of... It wasn't like somebody trying to set the owl free, we don't think. So it's just somebody vandalised his, uh, his, yeah. his exhibit at the zoo. Yeah. What do you call it? An exi- I don't like using the word cage, as you heard last week when we started talking about hamsters. Cage, anyway. Yeah, but it probably is a cage. Yeah. But, but um, just Quarters. to give you... Quarters. Somebody vandalised his quarters, his accommodation. Yes. Um, to give you an idea of how significant he, he became to New Yorkers, I've read at least two hefty news stories, an opinion piece and an obituary in the New York Times, which is a serious newspaper. I know they're sort of saying it's become a symbol of New York. Well, I think there's something about him escaping from the well, escaping from the zoo, and then to be fair, the previous pieces said that he had a lot of odds against the odds were stacked against him because of running into buildings, which is eventually seems to be what did for him. Rat poison when he ate rats, and pigeons also seemed to eat the rat poison uh, that he was eating pigeons. Yes, they th- they think he's flown into a window. Yeah, uh, but it says here, um, although uh, a necropsy will be performed to determine the cause of death. Here's a question. Why isn't it an autopsy if it's an owl? I have no idea. So do you think the word autopsy only applies to humans? Maybe it does. Maybe that's true. I think it should be an owl-topsy. Yeah. You're not going to humour that at all, are you? I'm not, no. Uh, Anyway, there you go. But he was the owl of our hearts. I think Elton John should do a song. Do you not think they should have hushed it up so that it gave people something to believe in? I think it might have been a bit obvious, really. Don't you think? What do you think they should play at his funeral? Go on, I think you've got some really bad dad joke <laughs> waiting. No, well, I, I looked up what popular songs to play at funerals are, and uh, Wind Beneath My Wings. Very good. Looks like they're most appropriate, although you could have Owl Always Love You. Oh, dear. Do you want to move on? I think we should move on. Uh, now, I've got something very uplifting and optimistic to say, which is, I was in the Portcullis House copy queue this week. Uh-huh. 
and Greg Clark, MP for Tunbridge Wells, who did shadow me when I was the Climate Change Secretary. And then he became later the Business Secretary under Theresa May. And he and I have known each other for a long time. Uh, he said to me, you're my guilty pleasure. Wow. And it turns out he is a listener to the Chatteroo. Oh, well, Greg Clark, we salute you. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Look at us reaching out across the political divide. Exactly. Friends in high places. Yeah. So I thought that really made me think we've got at least got one listener. <laughs> <laughs> and if any, uh, if any other people in the House of Commons or House of Lords want to come out to Ed while they're in the queue. He said it'd be recommended by somebody and I... I wasn't sufficiently needy to say, well, who recommended it? Because that would make the second listener. You know, uh, you know who it was? Theresa May. Yeah, that's right. I'm convinced of it because uh, you, you asked her if she'd come on the podcast when she had the her book out. And I think she, she felt too starstruck. She made a face, actually. <laughs> <laughs> she said she was all booked up. Right. Uh, anyway, so that's good, isn't it? Yeah. But then you're you're chock full of things this week because you've got something very good to say, which is you sent it to me, um, and I replied saying, "Yep, uh, uh, hedgehog sightings on the up." Yes, this was a, a story I saw earlier this week, and I was so excited by it that I texted it to you, um, and I thought, "I wonder what Ed will think about this." But you're right; I just got the word "yep" in reply. <laughs> what was I supposed to? I mean. Just what are the range of responses on hedgehog sightings on the up? I mean, good. That's such great news. Thanks so much. I mean, I just did, I didn't feel I had much of an array of responses. Do you know but, what I mean? But I also made a great little quip. I said, there's been a spike in hedgehog sightings. God, you know, I didn't even notice. And I put a little hedgehog emoji next to it. Your genius is wasted. Yes, uh, uh, or um, possibly non-existent. Um Hedgehogs have had some unexpected good news after years of decline in British gardens caused by habitat loss and fragmentation. Their numbers may finally be on the way up again. Readers of B- this is from the Guardian, by the way. Readers of BBC Gardeners World magazine were asked to chronicle the wildlife in their gardens and reported that hedgehog sightings were up two percentage points in previous surveys. They've been declining. Are there any reasons offered for this? Well, what what do you speculate the reasons might be? No idea. People are more observant. I mean. It says there have recently been campaigns in urban areas to leave patches of gardens messy with logs, uh, long grass and plants. That's what we've been doing. Uh, I mean, accidentally, as it turns out, but uh, um, so that hedgehogs can nest and hunt for insects. And people have also created hedgehog highways. You know about these? No. These like holes in fences so that hedgehogs can wander around. Wow. So this is good news. Surely it's good news from a biodiversity point of view as well. I think it is good news. That's oh, right. I did that in a squeaky voice. Uh, I mean, I, ju- I just feel like my repertoire of knowledge on hedgehogs is is uh, limited. Limited. Why don't we ask for any good uh, hedgehog facts? Or do you have a hedgehog that pays you regular visits? Have you named it? Do you feed it? What does it like to do? I just want to do a shout out to Faye Vass. I hope I pronounced it right. The CEO of the British Hedgehog preservation society which i think you should become the patron of she said valuable as the gardener's world is we need to remember these figures are only a snapshot populations change yeah yeah these findings might not necessarily represent the underlying trend that sounds like what a politician says when i was you gonna have a say good, these a good opinion are only poll. a snapshot the only po- <laughs> the only poll that counts is election day uh 
And then she also says our state of report is the most comprehensive overview of the UK's hedgehog population. All the results give us cause for cautious optimism. Urban populations are still much lower than they should be. Sorry to rain on your parade. Well, listen. Uh, Kevin Smith, the editor of BBC Gardener's World, is more on the upside. Well, I bet he is. It was Gardener's World survey. Uh, right, I see, yes. I think we should ask people, if you're listening to this and you, you have a, a hedgehog friend or you know some good facts about hedgehogs, or owls for that matter. Which mean a hedgehog friend? A hedgehog who'll visit your garden. Oh, 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 oh I see. A regular visitor. What are you doing to save the hedgehog? Any, any of these things. The email address is chat at cheerfulpodcast.com. I was going to ask you a question, which is loosely on this topic. Do you think that nature and rewilding, in terms of spending money on it, is a harder sell politically than like green technologies, like uh, uh, green transition, because there's this idea that there's a lot of money to be made for the country by being a world leader in green technologies. So I think people possibly who aren't deep into these issues might be more behind that than they would be on spending on nature. Although, well, but I think you might be right, but I think the public are as much, if not more, into nature and biodiversity, don't you think? I yes. think in a way, it's it's an easier way in, but it's it's so much more relate relatable to people's everyday lives, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, I we think... found that during the pandemic, and you know, you see from BBC Springwatch, the Hedgehog Survey, whatever it is, that people really get enthused about this. Yeah, I think people love nature, but I think it's almost like they compartmentalise what they think money should be spent on. So maybe pe- people would think if you announce we're going to spend you know, this uh, many hundred million pounds on this, oh, they'd think, well, that's all very nice, but is it a bit woolly and a bit musical? Oh, I see. Yeah, maybe that's true. I, I, I think we did an episode many moons ago... Uh, when we were in our podcast youth, about access to green spaces and unequal access to green spaces, didn't we? Yes, we, we've done a lot. And, and I always found them some of our favourite episodes when we were talking about things like rewilding and biodiversity and access to nature. And mushrooms. I feel like we, we've still got fungi exploration to do, don't you think? Definitely. We should go on a retreat. Fungi retreat. With a shaman. I'll take that under advisement, as they say. Now, in the sort of broad area that we've been uh, talking about, which is uh, climate and nature, I want to recommend a uh, blog to you, a two-part blog, which we'll put in the show notes, I think, uh, by Michael Liebreich, who has a podcast called Cleaning Up. But he has got a blog which is entitled Net Zero Will Be Harder Than You Think and Easier. And he wrote part one on Harder in September 2023. And he, I confess I didn't see part one, but somebody in my office actually sent me part two from February, and I've now read part one and part two. If you're wanting a, a sort of primer on why the green transition is harder than you think and easier than you think, uh, it's a really, it's a really, really good primer with lots of links. And I just wanted to sort of pull out one thing about the easier. You've got these five superheroes uh, under easier, and the first one is ex- exponential growth. And I just thought I'd read this to you. I think this will be familiar to you, but I think it's really worth saying. 20 years ago, in 2004, it took an entire year to install a single gigawatt of solar PV. Uh, a, a, you know, a gigawatt is 1,000 uh, megawatts. By 2010, it took the world one month to install a gigawatt. By 2016, one week. Last year, there were single days on which a gigawatt of solar PV was installed. And that is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. About the surge. Yes, it's like, what's that law called in computing? Is it Godwin's? Yeah, Moore's Law. Moore's, Moore's law. law. Oh, yeah, Godwin's Law is a different thing. Yeah, Moore's Law is about the, the computing capacity doubling. Yeah. 
Uh, anyway, it, it, I mean, I think I've probably talked to you this before about this before, and Kings. Remember with the episode with, with Kings Mill Bond, but you know, also what's so interesting about this, particularly this point number one, is that he sort of points out all the people who've said renewables will never do that much and there's always going to be limits and this, that and the other. And uh, he, he says, in 1993, a group of German utilities placed full-page ads in German newspapers stating that renewable energies like sun, water and wind will not be able to cover more than 4% of our power demand, even in the long term. In 2023, renewables provide over 50% of German electricity. Yeah, that is my great reason to be cheerful in relation to the climate crisis is the speed of take up of solar wind and so on is actually massively you know we are behind where we need to be significantly behind where we need to be to keep global warming to 1.5 degrees but the pace of take up of uh solar and wind and so on is is definitely exceeding many people's forecasts so do you think if you read both parts of this blog you'll come away feeling depressed or optimistic well i read the first part about the easier bit before i read the second part i confess um yeah, I think he's good because I think he did them in the right order. <laughs> you know, yeah, I think I think you'll feel well. I think you'll feel, oh my goodness, this is a massive challenge. But then you'll feel optimistic. I, I recommend it. If people have questions and so on, then they should about it. Let us know and maybe I can answer them. Yeah, read it. Send us your thoughts, and Ed will answer any questions. Maybe. Yeah. Did you read that thing I sent you about habituation? I did. It was very interesting. It was in the Guardian. It was um, part of their big idea series i think it's based on a book that's out and it starts like this imagine you're out for dinner at your favorite restaurant and the waiter seats you at the best table it's nice and quiet so you can have a pleasant conversation with your partner the table's also right next to a window with great views you drink your wine enjoy some delicious food the dinner lasts a couple of hours do you think you'd enjoy the evening more if you sat at that nice table the whole time or if you were occasionally sent to the back of the restaurant where it was crowded and noisy? I mean, the obvious intuitive answer is in the same place. And that's not what the research shows. Yeah, I know. It's interesting, isn't it? So, so the idea is that you get used to nice things very quickly. Like, Have you ever seen that episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm where Larry walks into a lawyer's office and there is a fantastic view over the whole of Los Angeles and he says to the lawyer, how long does it take for you to get bored by that view then? Like, Five, five minutes, ten minutes, and there's something in that, isn't there? You know, I have a very nice view of my House of Commons office, and everybody always says to me, oh, what an amazing view. And I always say, oh, I was hoping for a better view after 2015, ha-ha. <laughs> uh, but it is interesting. It is completely true. I am totally accustomed to it. Yeah, this is the idea. So they, they've done research into what holidays do for people. And they're saying that most of the sort of surge in happiness you get on a holiday is when you arrive and you see the sea for the first time or you see your lovely uh, room or if you sit down, have a meal, and then over the week that declines. So it's saying actually for those hits of happiness, it's better to take short trips many times. I think times. this might also be known as, this might also relate to something called... I'm just looking it up. The hedonic treadmill is basically that you sort of buy a new piece of technology or some pleasurable thing. Oh, here we are. The hedonic treadmill, this is Wikipedia, also known as hedonic adaptation, is the observed tendency of humans to quickly return to a relatively stable level of happiness despite positive oh, or negative events or life changes. According to this theory, as a person makes more money, expectations and desires rise in tandem 
which results in no permanent gain in happiness. That's that sound a little similar? Yeah, so that's a bit law of diminishing returns-ish as well, isn't it? Uh, yeah, like if you eat a great sandwich, the first time you taste it, you think, this is the best thing I've ever eaten. And then the next time you have it, you think, oh, that's nice. And then eventually it, it just becomes bog standard to you. But I think what, what this is suggesting is that you take a bite of the sandwich and then leave it a while and then go back to it or don't have another one like that for a while. So it's about keeping things fresh. Does that mean that if you're doing something wretched and miserable that you're not enjoying, that you should break it up and keep going away and uh, giving yourself nice little distractions? Hang on, though. No, I think it's the opposite. Hang on, have I misunderstood this? Oh, no, I think you're sorry. The lesson, if you need to complete an unpleasant task, it would probably be wise not to chop it up once you come back the smell will be worse than now it seems like a reason what it isn't correct when people were more actually exposed to noise those who took time out suffered more overall do you you see what i mean yes you see it's a sort of opposite way what about unpleasant experiences should you divide those up too suppose your upstairs neighbor marvin is practicing the drums and he can you can hear the annoying noise loud and clear should you make marvin a cup of coffee so you both get a break from the bang bang of the drumsticks uh, most people want to endure the unpleasantness in chunks, but when researchers ask people whether they would like a break from smelling a nasty odor or just have the whole thing over and done with in one go, 90 people said, breaks, please. And they did so because they believed the experience would yeah. be less upsetting with a breather. But it isn't correct. Aha. Uh-huh. Oh, so you should just knuckle down and do something. Yeah. Oh, this is bad news for us procrastinators. Mm, I was going to say, what seemed like more extraordinary is that the you sort of actually read it the opposite to what it was saying. <laughs> well, you see what you want to see sometimes, don't you? That is a sort of Rosash test, isn't it? Yes. You actually sort of misinterpreted. I thought that was the most interesting is that there's a sort of asymmetry to it. Aha. Uh-huh. But, I mean, let's be honest, you're not going to go to the nice table in the restaurant then say to the people in the restaurant, can I go to a really noisy, horrible table for 10 minutes then come back no i mean it's probably is a lesson for life here isn't there about i should sort of walk into my office in poor colour's house as if i'm walking into it for the first time yes but you can't trick your brain into doing that you are accustomed to it or is there a trick well that's interesting is it just about appreciating it chat at cheerfulpodcast.com and the book is called look again the power of noticing what was always there 
Do you remember we were talking about uh, short replies to text messages and whether it's okay yes. to just send a thumbs up? Yes. Alistair emailed in and says, Hi, Jeff and Ed. I, like, enjoyed your chatteroo about the one-word <laughs> replies, <laughs> veering into emoji replies. I thought you'd like like to know that my 16-year-old calls the thumbs-up emoji the dad emoji. Not just for me, but I think on behalf of dads everywhere. I suspect the idea is that we dads only really have the technical capacity to use one emoji. Uh, as you can see, in my case, that is grossly unfair, as I've already used two. And that's right, he's got the kind of um, the, the one that's reminiscent of Edvard Munch's The Scream and the thumbs up. Yeah, it's a good email, isn't it? Yeah. But I, th- I think I have a larger repertoire of emojis than just the thumbs up. I mean, as mentioned earlier, I sent you a hedgehog. I know. I, yeah, I, I don't. I'm not. It's true. This thing about the thumbs up being the dad emoji. I'm not sure. I think young people use them too. Maybe check with a young person. If you're a young person, and you're accidentally listening to this podcast. Let us know. What are you doing with your life? <laughs> uh, are, are there some emoji that if you see them, you just think, oh, "Okay, boomer." If you go on your text messages. Um, and then you start typing message and press the emoji button. What are your most frequently used emoji? Are you asking me? Yeah. Mine are headphones, hedgehog, thumbs up. Oh, yeah, there it is. How do you know what the most re- frequent is? So go to your text, start sending me a text, and then, yeah. press it, and then uh, select emoji. And if you go all the way to the left, it'll show you the ones that you most frequently use. Balloon, tears, rolling eyes, funny moustache and eyebrows one that sounds about right for you yeah i didn't know that worked yeah i think they'll probably in the future there'll be entire psychological assessments based on what emoji you most frequently use what a world right this comes from abby stacy subject filler words hi this week's discussion on filler words made me think that ed jeff might find a segment on episode 565 of the podcast 99 percent invisible interesting as it talks about some of the history of filler words, as well as the role they play in conversation. Yeah, so I didn't get a chance to listen to the episode, but I did go on the 99% Invisible website, and I cut and pasted uh, some of uh, some of what they discussed. In, in using these kind of words and phrases, we signal to others in a conversation about where we're headed. They might let us set the tone, for instance, for an abrupt or unexpected change in emotive content. Not sure that's true of like. We can also use them to reserve space, that's more like it, indicating that we're not finished with our thought yet. Not only are filler words found in all spoken language, they also appear in sign language as well, suggesting they're not just ticks of how we talk, but integral to how we generate speech. That is so Fil- interesting, isn't it? Fil- yeah, it's so interesting. Filler words are not, in fact, something to be ashamed of. Using Instead, they actually serve an important function by helping us shape conversation. So they're common to every language, including non Sign language. Ones. I mean, that is yeah. so interesting. Yeah. Right, now this one's, a, this, one's a, this one's a doozy from Molly Andrews. You, I think you get to read it. Okay, Molly says, Hi, Jeff. Hi, Ed. So, I thought I'd write in this week to thank you. When I heard Cheerful Pod was shutting down, ah, I decided to go back and listen to some old episodes and got onto the one where you all played Class Struggle at Christmas. And basically, my communist granddad turned 79 this year, so I found a picture of the game board online and decided to recreate it so we could all play it for his birthday. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, I don't know if that comes under small acts of kindness or just uh, as a fun segue for you, but obviously, if you'd ever like to play again, there's a handmade copy in London. And she says, I've attached some images and videos of us playing if you're interested. So you've got the photos there in front of you, haven't you? It's absolutely fantastic. So how does the handmade class struggle compared to the, the, the real article from your childhood? 
Well, you and I have played the real one. I mean, honestly, I think this looks even better, doesn't it? Are you getting a Proustian rush looking at it? I just think it's just sort of, what a brilliant act. I mean, that is a genuinely brilliant act of kindness by Molly, don't you think? Yeah, and I don't think you've seen the videos, but the, the videos are brilliant as well. Your granddad seems great. And you seem great too. Molly, yeah. Yes. Y- your brother I'm not convinced by, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't, don't mean <laughs> Uh, well, that, yeah, they are good emails. And if other people have emails they want to send... We'd love to hear from you. We want your chat in our chat, please. Now, I'm very intrigued by the story about the Victorian Albert Museum. Yes, we should finish on this, shouldn't we? I'm hoping you have a long political career, Ed. I'm, I'm hoping they have to drag you out of that House of Commons at the age of 105. But as they say, all political careers end in failure. So th- this is something that, you know, if the unexpected happened, this is something you could think about because the Victoria and Albert Museum are seeking a Taylor Swift fan. I know. Isn't that amazing? Yes. I don't think I'm quite knowledgeable or fanatical enough, don't, do you think? Do you want to tell us some more about it? Yes, I do. The V&A Museum in London, this is from the BBC, is looking for a Taylor Swift superfan to become its official advisor about the star. A British Swifty who can give their expert insights into fan culture and memorabilia. It said it's especially interested in the craftsmanship behind handmade signs and friendship bracelets. I'm laughing because I don't think that's my expertise. Fans of the 14-time Grammy Grammy-winning singer often swap friendship bracelets at her shows. The museum, which specialises in art, design and performance, wants to appoint someone before the 34-year-old pop, US pop star begins the European Leg of the Era's tour later this year. I think it's such a clever thing. I do think, I, I predict this, we're going to have Taylor Swift mania, aren't we? This summer when she hits these shows. Yeah, yeah. yeah, undoubtedly. Will you be going to the concert? Don't think so. It's hard to do. Yeah. Have you seen the film? No, I haven't, actually. I, I was really quite into the idea of going to see it. It was in the cinema. But then um, I, I, I can't see myself putting it on at home. Yeah. I mean, talking of putting things on at home. Oh, no. <laughs> You're about to ask me if I've watched Shrinking yet. I am, actually, yes. OK. I, I haven't. But look, here's, here's, here's how seriously I'm taking it. I'm writing it on my hand. So it's just because I have to watch so much TV for the other podcast. I'll tell you what I watched this week was The Way, uh, which is James Graham. No, I mean, honestly. (laughs) You can hear me trying to change the subject. The the, the crunching of the gears was was noticeable. Yeah, I'm only trying to be like, you know, you if you're on Newsnight or something. Like, Uh, taking control of the narrative. Yeah. But no, you think, don't worry. But you no, you no, 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 no. You you think it's you think it's that important. You think it's that good that I should be um, clearing some time in my schedule to watch. No, it. I think you've got many other things to worry about than my TV recommendations. No, I'm going to show you that I uh, that I respect you as a friend and take you seriously, and I'm going to have watched uh, watched some of it by this time next week. I know I I've said I... that before, but you you just wait. I'm not going to renege this time. We've not done the book thing, have we? Oh yeah, so I so it was the book crossing. So yeah. I've gone as far as to register on the book crossing oh, website, but well, then it said you have to print out a label, um, right. and I don't have a, 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 my 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 printing expertise doesn't extend to printing labels. You have to print the label. That's what it says. Yeah. Oh no! Can't yeah. you just print it off and then stick it in a book? I bet you could, couldn't you? Okay, I, that, sounds like that. A, that sounds like a sort of lame excuse. I even I even pulled out a pile of books and I thought, right, I'm going to be uh, I'm going to be impressive here. I'm going to uh, I'm going to show Ed. I think we should take this seriously, right? Okay, let's just let's just. Okay, I, I think I'm going to do this. Okay. Okay. The thing is, so what do you 
Where do you leave the book? I think that's part of the fun of it, isn't it? Maybe on a table in a cafe. Maybe on a vacant seat on the bus. Okay, I'll... I'll um... Maybe in the Portcullis House cafeteria. The thing is, though, I think it's such a readable book that people are going to keep it. Isn't the point that it's supposed to travel? Yes, but maybe somebody will find it with this note in it, read it and think, oh, I, I want to I pay that forward. I'm, I'm going to uh, pass that on to the next person. I okay. think that's the idea, isn't it? Yeah, OK. All OK, right. so I'm, I'm, I'm literally going to leave this interaction <laughs> and go and do this. Me too. OK. All right, well, have a lovely see week. You. And I'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.